don't know if this soundproofing stuff is going to work at all or if it's going to just be total bullshit and I'll sound exactly the same this week. You do sound different, and I'm having a hard time uh, making up my mind whether it's good different or bad different. <laughs> yeah, I. the acoustics in here are not what I hoped they would be. Um, turns out a closet that has some downsides. <laughs> <laughs> are you telling us at some point that you'll be coming out of the closet? <laughs> Later this morning, I'll be coming out of the closet. <laughs> I'm actually using your... Do I sound any different? I'm using your trick of uh, putting my microphone inside of a box and putting a blanket around it. You do sound lovely, yes. You yeah. sound yeah, you you sound good. I uh-huh. I started panicking this uh this morning because uh my the the person who has the studio on the other side of the wall that I'm facing right now has a big wood shop and they are busy as can be running buzz saws and sanders and god knows what else and cranking southern rock at the at the highest they possibly can. I've heard Sweet Home Alabama about 3 times this morning. Oh, high, highly played Southern Rock. Brad, go over and ask him if he can turn the buzzsaw louder. Just... <laughs> yeah, or, or just take, use, use the buzzsaw and take off one of my ears. <laughs> just as a personal favor. Hey, as a personal favor, can you take that hammer to my skull a few times? <laughs> Holy cat. So I thought, well, maybe I better. So, so we're not ending up doing a, move, a music review at the same time. I figured I better try your little trick and put this thing in a box. Yeah, so I'm currently uh, so, so to paint the picture of for everybody at home. My uh, closet in my new studio is kind of semi walk-in. It has about two to three feet of play before the shelves start. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is on one of the shelves I built like a little mini desk. Oh, and um, we had uh, I had an electrician come in and put a little plug in here so I could podcast from the closet because. I had read that a lot of great uh, uh, amateurish podcasting can be done from inside of a closet. And then I took moving blankets, put them because they're sort of double walled moving blankets, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, put them around the walls behind me to, to bounce, uh, to, to not have sound bouncing. Um, but now I here's the mood that I'm in. I feel like I'm podcasting from inside a closet. And I don't know how <laughs> I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's got to be a weird feeling. And do, do you have the door shut behind you? I do have the door shut, but there's a light on in the closet, so it's not like I, you know. <laughs> you need to hang some art or something, or or because because that would be claustrophobic after a little while. I just need that like that cat hanging from a tree, going, "It's a living." <laughs> hang in there, hang in there. Yeah, I like that. I messed it up. The most famous like <laughs> right to the other the the Flintstones where the the woolly mammoth is washing dishes, and and he always turns to the camera and says, "It's a living." Oh my God, that woolly mammoth! Oh geez, that can, the the fact that the Flintstones ran on primetime still blows my mind. That's that was amazing that they they were able to pull that off. Oh, but absolutely. there were there were smoking commercials in the Flintstones cartoons. If you you can look this up on YouTube, they would do that uh, that in show commercial bit where all of a sudden Fred would just take out a, a Paul Mall or whatever the heck, a Winston Salem, whatever he's smoking, and start talking about how, you know, how delightful it feels to smoke a cigarette. And, and then they'd go back to bowling on tippy toes. What? Oh, they yeah. Didn't... Look this up. Oh, my God. This is like BC again from last week. Yeah. All of a sudden well, we have that, cavemen that's... smoking. <laughs> he would. It was. It's funny you mentioned that. He would take a long drag on a cigar and then he'd turn right to the camera and say, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? And, and Wilma would say, you know, uh, I, I, 
please hand me one of those things you're smoking. And then it would go on to the, you know, whatever the hell. Uh, He'd be on top of a brontosaurus moving stuff at the gravel yard. So the fact that the fact that BC had this total anachronism and that the Flintstones (laughs) had continuous anachronism tells me that as a society, we have have just accepted the fact that cavemen had laser guns or something like we we cannot we cannot put them safely in their own time period where we have to we have to mess with that. Well, yeah, the, the one thing they both have in common is that they both seem to be living at the same time as dinosaurs, which we know is is way wrong. But if you ask most Americans, I guarantee you they'd say, oh, yeah, there was cavemen and dinosaurs at the same time. Yeah, the uh, whenever I whenever remember when Jay Leno used to do those streetwalker things where he would uh, would go out and interview people about basic things that you should know. Yeah, and, and uh, the entire time I was watching those, you're laughing, but you're going, "God, the American school system! What have we done? <laughs> what have we built?" Oh, yeah, no most, one knows most, anything. Most of what the average American knows about anthropology came from the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thank God for woolly mammoths; they'd never get their dishes washed. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy well on that note hi everybody and welcome to comic lab the show about making comics and making a living from comics i'm brad geiger editor of webcomics.com and cartoonist of evil inc and i'm dave kellett cartoonist of drive and sheldon <laughs> and co-director of strips i wanted to hit that the way you hit that that was great <laughs> and this week's hour of comics advice is made possible by your support at patreon.com slash comic lab and Bradley, how are you doing this week, my friend? Oh, man, it's been a good week. It's been a very good week. I, I, things are I, I'm, I'm in that uh, little Kickstarter honeymoon where the, the money is being collected and, and nobody expects too much from me just yet. <laughs> so that's kind of <laughs> nice. <laughs> and knowing that the shoe's going to drop uh, next week. It's like the first week of marriage. Everything's yeah. fine. The honeydew list hasn't expanded yet. Yeah, everything's perfect. But uh, but yeah, it's been it, and the weather's starting to uh, clear up. And see, my my younger son Max uh, has really gotten into bicycling, and he's he's been doing a lot of bicycling. And and the thing, and we send him. You know, we live in Philadelphia. And so we, we trust him to go a few blocks. We have a little, you know, a parameter that he stays within or a perimeter. And, uh, and, and so he wants something, somebody to bike with him and uh, his mom's got a bike, but it's not fixed up yet. And so he's been really, really getting after me to buy a bicycle and, and go biking with him. And so oh. there's this place called Neighborhood Bike Works out in West Philly, and they're a nonprofit, and they take in a bunch of bikes that have been, you know, turned in, donated, and all this stuff. They fix them up, and then they sell them for very, very affordable prices. And I had a little birthday money kicking around in my pocket, and so I went and bought a nice little green bicycle and a helmet. Uh, because my son was not going to let me out of there without a helmet. He, he's he's been taking a lot of these courses and stuff, and and uh, and he's very safety conscious, which suits me just fine. And uh, and so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to getting some biking in this summer. Can I tell you the image of you on a bike delights me? I am delighted by this. <laughs> well, I'm del- I'm thinking I'm thinking specifically of your physique on a bike, and I'm loving it. I love what I'm imagining I'm, in my mind. I'm hoping to get some of that physique uh, eliminated by doing a little <laughs> bit of biking. <laughs> oh, that wasn't a fat joke. That's not what I meant. No, what I'm what I'm picturing in my mind is: Do you remember the way that uh, Henson, Jim Henson, figured out how in the Muppet movie to get Kermit riding a bicycle? <laughs> yeah. 
that's that's kind of the one I'm like I'm joyfully going, yay, Brad's on a bike. This is great. I'm just I'm just delighted by it in a way that a child is delighted by their parents doing something. You know, it's it's fun. Well, it's it was really funny because of course you, before you buy the bike, they have you take it for a spin around the block and uh, to see whether it fits well and all this stuff. And so oh, sure. you know, Max, who's been biking for for about a year now, seriously, uh, uh, he says, you know, here's where you do you you go down to this corner, you turn and blah blah blah. So I take off uh, very wobbly on the bike and and make it for a complete city block all the way around without getting hit and without running into anybody. And I turn the last corner and I see him standing on the sidewalk with kind of, you know how you like you, you have your arms crossed, your head down, and one of your hands is up holding your temples, you know, that right. stance. Right. And as I pull up, I hear my words as a father coming back to me through my son, the same tempo, the same cadence, the same tone uh, where he looks at me up over his pinched temples and says, OK, that was fine. Let's talk about how to do that better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And I, and, 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 and I realize <laughs> I was a real asshole as a father because <laughs> it was exactly the way I would have said it. Oh my gosh. That's funny. All right, cut. We're going to do another take with Kermit on the bike. Let's get him back on there. We're going to do that one. That one was good. Let's see if we can do that better. Were you a biker when you were growing up in, in Michigan? Well, see, that's Is that what you do thing. in Bad Axe? I mean, my childhood revolved around a bike. That was your freedom. I mean, I, I growing up in Michigan, yeah, you know, we, we would be roving bands of young kids. Everybody had a bike. That's how we got everywhere. Uh, we would go and get, you know, take them out into the woods, get into all kinds of trouble. And, uh, you know, it, it's that story that you probably hear a hundred times by now. We didn't, we, we had no supervision. There, it was just like we got, especially in the summer, we got kicked out, get out of the house. Mom needed us out of the house because we were driving her nuts. You know, we, we'd come back once for, for lunch. Somebody would call for lunch and then everybody knew it was time to go home for lunch. And, and then we'd get kicked right back out and don't come back until the streetlights are on. <laughs> and that's yeah. when you knew to come home. And in the, in the meantime, if you were in the backyard playing baseball, you were out riding your bike looking for some trouble to get into. That's that's exactly my childhood. That's those were good days. Yeah, Brad, those were good days. <laughs> so it does feel nice to be on it. There is something nice about bicycling. It, it's just it's it's enjoyable. The uh, the greatest the greatest foolhardiness I ever did in my entire life. I actually got pretty good at riding bike in my teens. And the one trick that I could do is I could have one foot on my seat and one foot on my um, steering uh, on my uh, on my handlebars. Standing up, and I could I could stand on my bike with my one foot on my seat, one foot on my handlebars. And, but it was delightful until I had the worst crash oh, I've ever had in my life that. and just ate it, just tumbled for like 20 feet. Oh. It was the worst. Uh, so you look back on your teen years, you're like, nah, I'm not pretty, not the brightest yeah, guy in the world. That's there. a good way to get a case of summer teeth. Yeah, summer, yeah summer in your mouth, summer on the ground, summer in your pocket. Oh, God bless America, that joke. <laughs> Where do you get these chestnuts? How do you? I collect these over time, and it's like when like, something like, like that ha happens, my heart starts beating faster. It's like, oh, God, here's the summer teeth joke. All I got to wait is to get him, get him to the end of his fucking sentence. <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing! It's like you're carrying around an old vaudeville joke yes, book. It's, yes, it's, it's the, a curse. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a curse. 
Meanwhile, in my brain, uh, I I actively try to remember jokes and can't remember a, a punchline setup uh, from any. Like you could ask me, Dave, tell me one joke. I got nothing. I literally have nothing. In the meantime, I ask you, and I get you know a, a, a duck under your arm and a violin in your hand, and you're standing up on stage with every every vaudeville joke ever written. Yeah, well, I'm telling you, it it, it is kind of like a curse because because it, it always comes out before I can stop it. And you know, I it, there's never a romantic moment between my wife and I, you know. Because she's always setting me up for jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! Well, speaking of of of, of setting up for jokes, why don't we get into some uh, some of the writing questions yeah. we have? Well, listen, don't we don't we have a uh, a call in a, an audio question from one of our ten dollars oh, Patreon backers? We do yes. For and just as a reminder, for uh, for those that back the show at patreoncom lab for which we are eternally thankful. And actually, I I reminding me, Red, I should I should pitch this hard because we're very very close to being able to hiring an editor yeah. uh and taking the load off of brad so uh if you're on the fence about uh, uh backing the show uh head over to patreon.com slash comic lab try it out for a month see if you're if you're willing to, to back the show it's the price of you know it's the old standard spiel of do it for the price of a single coffee you can enjoy comic lab um, and uh, help us get to uh, uh an editor uh, that can permanently be editing the show and take it off of brad's yeah. desk so Patreon.com slash comic lab. And uh, anyway, here's our first $10 question. These are backers that get to send in audio questions as thanks for backing the show. Hey, Brad and Dave. This is KR Hinton. Uh, I do zero lux at krhinton.com. So I wanted to get your input on using Instagram stories. My plan was to use stories to post every week, like uh, photos and videos of, say, a comic page in progress. So I just wanted to get you guys' thoughts uh, and input on maybe using Instagram stories for a comic artist. Thanks. So I've got some thoughts on this. All right. Let's uh, number one, I've become more and more uh, since since actually you can chart this since the start of Comic Lab when I was really kind of like nah, I don't know what I'm doing. I've become a really big fan uh, of Instagram, particularly for comics artists. I think it's brilliant. I'm getting, I, I don't have uh, the number of followers that uh, some other people like, I, I haven't, I haven't hit that, that uh, height that, that like you and Chris Halbach have, uh, have been doing, but I've been doing so much better than I thought I would. And uh, it, it is, it's getting very, very close to me calling it the perfect social media for sequential artists especially now that you can post like a panel at a time and you can have something where people swipe through panels. I am, yeah. Not only am I loving the presentation because it gets you really up close to the panel and my work looks, I, I'm sorry, my work looks great. <laughs> I, I, I love how my work, and, and listen, I've worked for 20 years to be able to say that. I couldn't say that uh, 20 years ago, but right now when you get up close to my inks, they look, they look real good. And and it's a this, great. This is delightful. I love this. This is it's 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 the tiny little car salesman part of your of your personality. Which is you're like you're gonna want to get close to my panels. You're gonna want to step into one of these Brad Geiger panels. Oh, look at you! You <laughs> look at you driving around in one of these Brad Geiger panels, going around town. Oh boy! Listen, what's it gonna take to get you into an evil link? <laughs> Imagine you living your life, but now you're in a Brad Geiger panel. No, but it, it it's really, really a, a good. And here's the other thing I find. When I post something in the morning, I get responses to it all throughout the day. Like Twitter, it settles to the bottom of the tank real quick. Facebook, too. 
But when I post on Instagram, I'm getting feedback on it throughout the entire day, which is really substantial uh, for me. So big, uh, a big turnaround on Instagram. And if you're doing sequential work, absolutely. You should be posting panel by panel. You use the multiple image Instagram post so that people can swipe through your comic and read it a panel at a time. As far as using those stories, absolutely you should be doing that. People love the process. People love you just looking into the camera and saying, I'm excited about this. I'm I'm really anxious about that. Uh, sharing your feelings as an artist, as a creator, is is very compelling, very, very worth looking in. And, and it makes me, it gives me a little emotional connection to your work. So this idea of doing a, uh, doing Instagram stories, uh, showing the background. I, not only do I like it, I'll probably steal it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think I said this on a past show and it, this was, comes from our friend Katie Lane, who's the, uh, lawyer to the stars in comics. Um, but Katie made the great, uh, thought that Twitter is for complaining and Instagram is for joy. And uh, I took that to mean, and I think this is, I'm pretty sure this is what she means, that it takes verbosity to be able to complain about your day. Like you need word, like no one's going to text a photo about uh, how they hate doing their taxes, right? No one's going to, no one's going to tweet a a photo about um, how their relationship is going bad. They'll use words. (laughs) That's a great Yeah, no, you're right. But for Instagram, think about Instagram is all about sharing joy. Like here, oh, here's my breakfast for today. Here I am going out and having fun. Here's me with my best friend Giggles. And I don't know why their friend is named Giggles, (laughs) but anyway. But that's that's the idea of Instagram is that it's all about sharing joy. And so it's so perfect for the cartooning format because it fits. It's like slots right into that. What what the entire medium of Instagram uh, does so well. so anyway, so yeah, I'm glad to see that you're you're using it more. As far as a, now to get back to this questioner, the cartoonist that I have seen using Instagram stories well, it is a great background for, hey, I love this art. Now I want to get to know the artist yeah. a little bit more. And in general, it's also good in this in this relationship for process. People love the people that do love process. They love to dive deep in how a comic is made. I would 100% put my weight behind uh, putting putting your process images and fo- photos and stories on Insta tor- Insta stories, and uh, maybe even saving the better ones as you can sometimes with Insta stories for um, your regular feed. Like you could put them together as one, stitch them together as yeah. one thing. So, uh, Brad, who do you who do you feel like is worth checking out on as you as you look on Instagram uh, for their Insta stories? Because I can think of uh, Chris Hallbeck who who does uh, like five jokes oh throughout God, the day. Oh my God, that guy's a machine. Almost throwaway jokes that I'm like that's. A perfectly good one why did you throw that away yeah. on insta stories but um uh he does that really well and i feel like uh luke mcgarry does a nice job of building a personality through his insta stories that that are tied to but separate from his instagram feed but uh, just out of curiosity anybody that jumps into your mind that does yes it well? and in fact i was going to bring it up even if you didn't ask because it's going to feel like a setup but uh we did not talk about this in advance are you going to no, say brad geiger because no, this is going to be amazing what what's line, it going to take to get you into a brad his geiger line art is a gorgeous no um, you know who does it really well who has me intrigued and compelled uh, and i look at everyone is this young lady by the name of gloria calderon kellett she okay. I'm not familiar. <laughs> Your wife. She does she does this all the time where she takes you behind the scenes of being a showrunner and a writer for TV and she's on the set and or she's in the car and she's doing this, she's doing that, she's walking down the lot and for me 
to live out my fantasy of what must it be like to live in that kind of world that I've had ever since watching the Dick Van Dyke show. I get to vicariously live through her little, and they're not, they, they, a lot of times they're not even stories. It's just like, hey guys, here's what I'm doing today. I, you know, we're doing a table read. This, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. I'm really uh, pumped up about it. It, it might be as as uh, commonplace as going to the, stopping by the convenience store for bread, but since it's part of her day, I get to live vicariously through that little fantasy. And what you have to realize is as someone who's making comics today, there's a bunch of people who feel that way about you. They, they are going to enjoy living vicariously through your life, through your little Insta stories. And remember, and not that Gloria is always very interesting, but you don't have to worry about having a punchline or being super interesting. Just you sharing what's going on right now and pairing it with some interesting visuals, uh, which of course, working on comics, you got visuals uh, coming out the yin yang. Uh, You can absolutely put out compelling material that people will enjoy living vicariously through. First of all, Gloria's Insta feed is delightful. I, I was particularly delighted when, for a week or two, we kind of didn't have access to a shower, and so she was showering at Sony on the on the studio lot, and uh, it would be so funny to see her Instagram story when she'd be walking across the Sony lot because you know it's also Hollywood, and who knows who's going to or from a makeup trailer, mm-hmm. so it's totally acceptable. But here comes this woman that's like in a bathrobe with a towel over her head walking across the Sony lot Instagram story. And needless to say, I'm delighted by my wife. I think she's wonderful. Um, But yeah, but Instagram is an interesting thing, too, in that. um, Do you remember that I made a real big push to get to 10,000? Because once you get to 10,000, you can link from your Insta stories. I don't know if you do that. So I made a real big push to get to uh, uh, 10,000. And then with regularity, I found it was not that hard to get up to 20,000. And then we started moving house and I kind of stopped posting on Instagram. Yeah. And so I haven't dropped followers, but I haven't gained anything. And it was going like gangbusters for a while there. And it made me realize something that I wanted to share with you, which is that, Bill, when you when you're working on different aspects of your career and by that, I mean, like I have to work on books. I have to write, create comics. I have to post (laughs) to Instagram. I have to update my Kickstarter. I have to um, build up and update my Patreon. Mm -hmm. Right. So all these different things I have to plan for San Diego Comic Con, all these different things that, that take your attention. What I realized, and I think this is a really good metaphor and I hope it helps other people, is that when I'm giving something focus in my career, like I was giving Instagram focus in my career, it's like building a drip sandcastle at the beach. And for those that uh, remember, you can take semi-wet sand in your uh, downturned hand and drip it into a pile and it becomes a really cool, unique looking drip sandcastle, right? Yeah. Um, I think I think most people remember that from their childhood if they haven't been to the beach for a while. But here's the thing. If you're doing it by the shore, because you have to, you need wet, wet sand. So you tend to be doing it right at that line of wet and dry, you know, on the ocean. <laughs> yeah. But every once in a while, the waves start coming up and licking at the bottom of your, of your sandcastles, right? Mm-hmm. And so. I, I realize that this is the perfect metaphor for what we do with our careers because I was giving focus to my Instagram, right? And I was like, I got to get to 5,000 people. I got to get to 10,000 people. I got to get to 20,000 people. Drip. And Drip. and I was building it, dripping up, build, building it up, building it up, building up. But in the meantime, the ocean is slowly licking away at my <laughs> other towers, my Kickstarter, my Patreon, yeah. my book planning, my San Diego Comic-Con. So Whatever you give attention to, you're building up, you're actively building up at that moment. But the other things in your career, while still steady, 
are a little bit eroding from underneath because the the waves are starting to come in or, you know, time and, and disuse are starting to come in. So I realized that as a metaphor, part of what we have to do as web cartoonists or, or artists working online is that you constantly have to be dancing back and forth between these sandcastles to keep the drips going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you can't neglect one completely because it goes fallow and it falls over. You have to constantly be dripping on, on all the ones. And by the way, it's okay if you get busy and one of them falls over. Or or partially falls over because you just go back and start dripping on that one and building it back up again. Sometimes you're going to have towers falling over on you. You're only human. And this is going to happen. You've only got so many hours in the day. And just like, you know, Dave feels as if maybe his Instagram tower is leaning a little bit. That, that just means that he's going to have to come back to it and put a little bit more attention to it. It's not a failure. It's not the end of the world. It, it's just part of being a creative professional in this environment we find ourselves in. And that's why I found it to be a helpful metaphor because you can feel like a failure in the sense that like yeah. right now I'm like, oh, I haven't put any focus on my on redesigning my website. Oh, I haven't done anything about planning for San Diego Comic-Con. It's like, well, you just got through a move. So that was your big sandcastle that you've been dripping for the last two or three months months. So give yourself credit for that. Mm -hmm. And then I, I got to get my Kickstarter book out to the press. So that's going to get my sand, uh, sandcastle drips. And, and in the meantime, uh, is Sheldon suffering a little bit? Absolutely. That sandcastle is leaning a little, a little <laughs> right now. And is my Instagram suffering? Absolutely. Is my Patreon suffering? And well, actually, what I wanted to tell you is I realized that I had not put any emphasis on the sandcastle that is my drive Patreon. Mm -hmm. And I had made the switch from per update to per month, which is a significant switch to make in Patreon. Yeah. And I, I had never followed that action up by saying, hey, everybody, we've made the switch. Now is a great time to jump in, right? Mm -hmm. I never do that in part because that Patreon switch happened the first week we put the house up for sale and started the move. So I made it a goal this month to grow my Patreon by 10% on drive. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to say that by by focusing on that sandcastle, I did it. This last month, we grew 10% on drive Patreon. And so that's going to be part of what your career has to do is that you just have to say, now I have to focus on Kickstarter. Now I have to focus on Patreon. Yep. Now I have to focus. On, and so will the other ones go fallow? Will the other ones fall over a little bit? Absolutely. But you, you'll, it's basically a dance over a 12-month period. This month, I'm going to focus on bettering my line art. This month, I'm going to focus on my web design. This month, I'm going to focus on Twitter. You can, you can absolutely do one or two, you know, two or three more uh, than, than one in a month. But I find I, do, I personally do best when I really drill down and focus on one thing and do it well for a month or two. Yep. No, absolutely. That's that's dead on. Well, let's move on to uh, the next question. What is your best advice for dealing with trolls, negative and insulting comments, etc.? Being relatively new to this and having more eyes on my work involves more criticism, which is okay, but I have a tough time with vitriolic and negative comments. Do you ignore them? Comment back? Any thoughts? I'm going to answer this one myself for a second, okay? Listen, jerk. <laughs> oh, no, what's happening? What's happening? No, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, here's, here's, what, what's your thoughts on this, Dave? I'll, I'll let you go first. I, I, I was just going for the punchline. What, what's your thought? So my immediate thought is you are in good company in that the entire human race responds more to a negative comment 
than it does to 10,000 positive comments. And the, uh, my personal reason for that is that because our brains are a difference engine. And the idea there being that we were evolved to re uh, respond to danger mm -hmm. and that our brain accepts a vitriolic or a negative comment as a form of danger. And so all these positive comments are water under the bridge, right? Yeah. You get 10,000 people telling you you're great and your brain goes, oh, that's fine. Lovely. How, how nice. Mm -hmm. But you get one negative comment and your brain literally goes, danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> and, um, which, is, by the way, is also my critique of that show. <laughs> hey, 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 there is no there there on that show. Um, anyway, your brain says danger, Will Robinson, because it's interpreting it as a threat. Like uh, we are social creatures. And so a negative comment is stage one towards violence, mm -hmm. if you think about mm -hmm. it. And so your brain interprets it as a threat. And so, of course, you focus your attention on it. Of course, that takes up uh, 10,000 more hours than the the all the positive comments you've ever gotten in your life. So know that you are in good company with the entire human race on that. But my thought is, unless it is truly a dangerous thought, and there are stalkers out there, mm -hmm. there are people that are um, truly dangerous online. So please be careful. And we can talk about that in a second. But unless they are truly dangerous, I personally... And I think I differ a little bit with Brad on this. I personally try to ignore them as much as possible. I try to give them no thought. I try to tell myself what a sad life they must be leading, <laughs> leading to to waste their time to express negativity to me, right? Mm -hmm. um, here I am creating things and putting things out in the world and your reaction is to be negative. Well, what a sad life you must be living that you need to put that vitriol on me. And so honestly, Brad, my reaction, I guess, is an egotistical one because I tend to say, what a sad person, what a sad life, and then, and then move on with it. You know what I mean? Like that is a form of egotism. I know that. Yeah. But it's also the protective shell that I've built for myself, which seems to work, which is to say, what a shit life they must have yeah. if, they're, if they're wasting their time on being negative to this stranger, i.e. me, online. I actually agree with you 100% on what you just said. I, I, I will add this. If you are feeling like you want to engage. If you are in that place where it's like, I'm, I can't let this go by. And we've all been there. <laughs> you know, when somebody throws some shade your way and it's like, no, I'm going to take this jerk down. Here's the first thing. And, and I, I, speaking of egotism, I'm going to, if you feel that your very thoughtful comments were egotism, wait to get blown out of the water by my egotism. Uh, the first thing I do, and I shouldn't say this because you will think I'm a jerk. First thing I do, if you send me some nasty comment or, or even just something that's a little terse, the first thing I do is I take a look at my Twitter followers and then I take a look at your Twitter followers. <laughs> You're not wrong. And if my Twitter followers are eight times as much as your Twitter followers, I do not respond to you because the only thing I could possibly do is amplify your comments to eight to an audience eight times the size that you had five seconds ago. So right. I do not amplify negativity. I will retweet a compliment just out of a good uh, uh, marketing and and uh, promotion. I will retweet that. I will engage in anybody that's saying something kind and thoughtful because that's just polite. If something says something nice to you, you say something back. But a negative comment, something something where somebody's clearly trying to get under your skin a little bit, before you engage, ask yourself, am I amplifying the wrong messages here? And am I giving this person a bigger audience than they had before I decided to get involved. And if the question is yes, then 
step away and go do something else. As another way of saying it, uh, as to Brad's excellent point, is don't give it oxygen. Yeah. Because when you when you respond to it, you give this sad person oxygen, uh, and, and by that I mean just in a fire sense. You give fuel to what they want to to basically. Here's here's what they're doing. They're at home and they're by their uh, on their computer on their phone and probably alone because you're you're not gonna you're not gonna make super negative comments to strangers unless you're like, man, the world is mean to me. Me, 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 me. And so by responding to them, you are giving them what they wanted, which is another human being's talking to me. You know, don't give them that. Uh, and then my my other thought is that find a support network that you can share the ridiculous ones. With. Um, yeah, and then and then take a screenshot of your conversation and text it to them yeah. and say, "Look at this." <laughs> Look at this! Look at this, Johnny Johnny Rube. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, Brad and I text a fair amount of like, "Look at this asshole!" That, uh, and uh, I have other friends and my wife, and I'm sure Brad gets Brad has friends and his wife that that also like get a fair share yeah. of like, "Look at this comment." Um, <laughs> like I I got one the other day that I shared with my friend Fred that was literally Brad. It was eight paragraphs of telling me what I'm doing with Drive, and my text to Fred was, "Boy, that's a lot of paragraphs on what I'm doing wrong." <laughs> Yeah, Dave always knows that I've got my Irish up when when he gets a text to me from me that starts out this fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> and over text, my initial response is always like, "Now, Brad, don't give it oxygen." But then ten seconds later, I'm like, "All right, let's give it a little oxygen. Let's <laughs> let's just talk about this jerk for a minute." Yeah, sometimes. Right. Well, yeah, and and that's that's actually good. What Dave just said is is actually good because here's the deal. We've all been in that situation where a friend comes over and says, can you believe what Sally just said to me? She just said that my shoes are too big. And you know what I wanted to say to her? And then all of a sudden, before before you know it, you're having the argument that you wanted to have with Sally with your friend. And a good friend will let you go through that role-playing because they know you need to get it out. You need to say it to someone. Find somebody who can be that friend. And if you are that friend, uh, realize that you're doing a real service for somebody when you're letting them get that out of their system because it is is a danger response. And, And we do need to do something with all that stuff that gets bottled up because that can be detrimental as well. Another thing that I would say, and Brad probably will laugh at this when I say it, but um, I would actually encourage you to bolster your own egotism about your work. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't sound, I don't say that in a prideful way. I mean, you have 20,000 people in the world, if not actively telling you that you're, you're never going to succeed, they're passively telling you you're never going to succeed, right? And so you have to be the ultimate um, promoter and believer in your work above anybody else. And part of that means cultivating your egotism such that when someone emails you saying like, your line art stinks, or I guess that's a punchline, or will you call this a storyline? Well, X, Y, Z. Um, you have to be able to say, you know what? No, I'm great. And I'm, I may not be perfect yet, but I'm getting yeah. better and I'm working on it. And what are you creating what over are you there? Doing? Uh, so yeah, what are you doing over there, uh, champ? Uh, and I'll tell you, could it, this is a tangent, but if you are going to send a creator a note, it, it, take a moment and realize everything that we just told, told you about what's going on inside of our heads. We're being very naked with you right now. We're being very honest. 
if you are a, a reader of someone's and and you are going to send them something that isn't a compliment, but but in your mind is constructive criticism that you feel you need to share. If you start out your message by typing out the word um or uh, know that you're a douchebag, close what you're doing and walk away. Do not send <laughs> me a message that starts, um, isn't propriety spelt with an R? Ah, uh, I'm not sure that's what Saturn was for. Don't type that um and that uh out. Know that it makes the... Bane on you know what my it is? forehead. Brad, you know what it is? It's it's the it's the pedantic version of I'm not racist, but <laughs> that's that's a pedant's version of I'm not oh racist. My God. Um I don't like to be that oh, guy, but you, or or here's the other one. I hate to be the one to say this. Every time I've ever had an email or a text from somebody who started, you that, don't. Hate I it. hate to be the one that says this. You know that they love being the one that says this. Yeah, <laughs> someone who has a pedantic personality lives for those oh, moments. Don't you know? tell me you hate to be the one. You're over there chortling with glee and it's driving me crazy. I hate to be the one to tell you about the proper use of bourgeois in a sentence, but... <laughs> but but on the other hand, if you're sending me a spelling correction, know that as much as I hate you, I also love you. Because, <laughs> because God knows I got to catch those before they get into the book and you're doing me a favor. Just don't type out the word um before it, okay? Just do me that. But I, I'm, I, I want to get to the to the more of the core issue here because I've always been fascinated by this, Brad, and we don't have to waste a whole chunk of time on it. But I would like to get your thoughts. What is what is the, the MO? What is the impetus for someone sitting at their computer and writing out complaints. Because in my mind, as a personality, I could never imagine Dave Kellett sitting down and going, I tell you what, Brad, here's the 10 things you're doing wrong with your art or career. Or like, who the hell am I? Like, let you live your life. I don't like it. Move on. There's a billion other things online. Like, why, why do some people go through life complaining, basically, I guess is my question. Well, I think, number one, there's just, there are people who are negative and that's the only way they can interact with the world. And, and, and we've all met people like that, that they are just negative people. However, when it comes to readers in general, uh, I really do believe that even the most negative comment or, or the most snarky criticism comes from a place of love. And, and what that is, is they're saying nobody reads this stuff as closely as I do. No one pays attention as much as you are such, your work is so valuable to me that I'm looking at it on a completely different level than everybody else. And I want you to know that. Yeah, I guess that's a form of like, yeah. But isn't that a form of like captive fandom in the sense that like, no, 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 you truly have me. And now you have to pay attention because like, you know what I mean? Like that's a form of emotional blackmail yes. is that like, I'm the one that truly gets you. And so you've got to listen to my oh, yeah. critique. No, know? that's that. That's part of it too. But, but, but I do think that in their mind, they're doing a loving act. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I just, in, in, in my way, this is my dime store psychology is that my way of looking at the world is that your life is what you choose to cultivate. And if you're choosing to cultivate negativity and choosing to cultivate 
criticism, then you're probably not cultivating happiness in your own heart. Like, so be positive and and like, I, I guess it's a version of like, if there's nine things that you love about an artist and one thing that you dislike, well, then why focus on the one thing you right. dislike? Like, tell them the nine things that you like about them. <laughs> For God's sakes, make the world a better place. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, and and that that is that. Ne- we just got done saying, you know, a, a negative comment is a danger response and everything, and and you know, you might get ten great comments and you think that's fine. Never let that dissuade you from sending that positive comment. There have been times that every now and again, I think we all as creators uh, have a tremendous amount of self-doubt and, and well, what am I really doing here? Uh, every, there, this, this has happened to me more than a dozen times when I was really, really struggling with you know, whether I made the right decision or if I, am I good enough? Am I, am I smart enough? And a little email or a, or a text or something, or something, a tweet pops up from somebody who says something genuine and wonderful and nice. And I've been saved by those kind of comments more often than I, than I really care to mention. You can really just, just the, a, a, a kind word that's genuine from a, from a reader can can you could be saving somebody from God knows what kind of dark place that they're uh, that they're going through? It's it, it's it's valuable to send uh, a genuine note of praise. Yeah, you know what? I I've never put that into words before. You said that beautifully. Is that those positive words aren't for when you're feeling good about yourself? They're for when you're having those dark moments, and they come in so handy for those dark moments. And we've all walked that road at one point or another. Absolutely. So yes. And speaking just uh, on Comic Lab, uh, we, our our listeners to this show have provided us with a repository that I've gone back to a couple times now and read the reviews that they've given us on iTunes. And some of the stuff they say there is so very uplifting and complimentary that when I need a little boost, I know exactly where I go. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. And and I'm not and that's uh, not shameful to admit that. We all need a boost from time to time. Yeah, you just want to know that your your life and your work and your efforts are not for waste and they're they're they are they are impacting someone else's life and trying to make the world a little bit better. And so when it happens, um, it can be a saving grace for those darker Absolutely. moments. So yeah. Let's go on to our next question. And this is one that I really want to get your thoughts on because it's 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 a doozy. Speaking about pulling back the curtain, whew. How do you go about setting up the story for your long-form comics? Do you have a start and an ending and just fill it in as you go? Do you divide it into seasons and work to an end goal? Do you map the writing as a script, outline, etc.? I've had a story in my head for a while that I'd like to tackle, but I just can't seem to organize all the ideas and story points into something cohesive. Dave, you're the better of the two of us on this one. How do you do it? Well, no, it's not like I'm Stephen King over here <laughs> cranking out a novel a week. So uh, I'm, I'm, just to give you some background, I only speak from experience with one long form story, which is Drive. I'm on page 400 or so of a, probably around a 900 to 1,000 page story, mm-hmm. right? This is the way I approach it. I don't know if it will work for you. I don't know if it's a universal, but all I can do is share my experience with how I did it. So I knew very clearly the world that I wanted to build. I knew what I wanted the human empire to look like. I knew what I wanted the aliens uh, races to look like in terms of how they constructed their society and how they formed themselves. Uh, and so I knew that I had four or five species in my head that were pretty clear. And I had the human political structure set up in my mind pretty clearly. 
And I knew the conflict between them and the end goal. I knew what the final third act was going to be, mm-hmm. right? And along the way, I also knew major points. So let's say that I'm starting in Los Angeles and Brad is living in Philadelphia, and I know I'm going to road trip to Brad's mm-hmm. house. So I knew I wanted to hit Denver. I knew I wanted to hit Chicago. And then I knew I wanted to get to Philly, right? Right. Uh, and what I say by that is, I don't know how I'm going to get to Denver, but I know I got to get to Denver. I don't yes. know necessarily how I'm going to get to Chicago, but I know I got to get to Chicago. And then I finally, I know I, I in the end, I know I'm going to get to Philadelphia. How am I going to get between Chicago and Philadelphia? I don't know. I'll figure it out with our maps. And so that interplay of knowing major plot points and knowing the final goal of my story, what that allows for is that there's a certain fluidity and a certain amount of, of limber dancing in between those major roadmap points so that if I want to go off into a side road to see the world's largest ball of yarn, I can pull off for an hour and see that. Boy, this metaphor is really getting too long. <laughs> but no, that's get what actually I'm a perfect metaphor. You get what I'm saying that like, while telling a story, sometimes a little sideline story that lasts 20 pages can entertain you. And you, and sometimes you have to allow yourself to do that. And sometimes in allowing a little flexibility, it actually informs and improves the second act, the third act, by having introduced that little bit of fun in the first act. Mm-hmm. So Drive is a is a unique story in, in the traditional novel sense in that most every novel would have been finished by the time it was turned over to a publisher and finished by the time it was given to readers' hands. There's not a lot of long-term work that was written while people were reading it. I'm trying to think of, I guess, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, some of the longer stories were written in installments. Um, can you think of other ones, Brad, in, tra- in traditional novels? Yeah. Well, Dickens, I think, did a lot of his stuff in installments. Christmas Carol was published in installments. True. Yes. That's a great That's a great reference. Yeah. Every possibility yeah. that he was working on that as they were being published, although I don't know that for a fact. Yeah, you're right. It's basically Victorian magazine and newspapers were installment writing novels, weren't they? Uh, yeah. So that's really the only other time I can think of it that that uh, I'm trying to think of any American authors that did that. But anyway, there is a unique dance in doing writing a story publicly in the sense that could I be making a massive mistake with Act 2 as I'm writing it publicly? Sure, that's 100% possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but in knowing that I need to get to Philadelphia and before that need to get to Chicago, I have the major tentpole moments that I need to get to. And so... Uh, those are my guiding lights while I choose which of the smaller roads I'm going to take to get there. Yep. Now, Brad, for you, long story writing, how, do, how does it work? Well, it, very much the same way. And I have to keep reminding myself that it doesn't. there's a hundred different ways to get from Los Angeles to Denver. And I can take any one of them. And it really doesn't matter which one I take. And because that's sometimes where you get hung up. It's like, oh, I've got to find the way of going from Los Angeles to Denver. No, you don't. There's a hundred different ways to do that. As long as you make it an interesting way, you've done it right. Taking that pressure off that, I, that you've got to find the way and, and get, getting all worked up into continuity. Like what if, what if I make a decision now that precludes decisions that I have to make when I'm on the Denver to Chicago leg? Well, that happens in all writing. And you will find that the best writers intentionally write themselves into a corner to challenge themselves to write their way out. Yes. Don't avoid those corners. You should embrace those corners. Right. Like, and and to, to, to amplify Brad's point, which is one of the best ones we've made yet so far on the show, 
writing yourself into a corner both intentionally and accidentally can produce some of the best creativity that your mind uh, uh, allows you because you are forced into it. Yes. And so you you have to basically dance your way out of a fight. And so uh, I can't emphasize that enough is that sometimes, uh, and Brad, you might do this as well, sometimes I will intentionally write in a situation where you're like, I don't know what the solution to this is. Maybe I'm writing this up and maybe it's possible that I could have set this up as a Chekhov's gun by by not intending it. But I think more likely I am going to remember to swing back around on this in 100 or 200 pages and re-include this tiny aspect of the story as a major right. plot point. So yes. basically you're you're planting seeds for future stories to which you don't know the solution and that can be fun like i have i have basically introduced certain character moments with drive events that happened where it either changed their personality or changed their abilities or changed their things where i don't know where exactly i'm going to reintroduce that but it's going to have a wonderful moment when i do bring it back you know and that's the kind of writing that people love to read uh, is when you take something small from the background from 2 months ago and then all, all of a sudden it's in the foreground Right. And it's important. And people love that. I, I've got a whole list in my sketchbook that I that I transfer from book to book as I get new books called Hanging Threads. And they're just all these little threads that I've left hanging in Evil Ink. That, and by the way, sometimes when you're stuck for something to write, I go back to a hanging thread and say, okay, I'm going to write this now. Here, It's time to tackle it, you know, and, and take that hanging thread and run with it. And, right. and, and that's, I, for me, that's, that's good writing. Uh, that's the kind of writing that I like to read. And that's the kind of writing I like to share with my readers. For Evil Inc., I, I, what I do is I start out with kind of an outline I, and go back in the, uh, pa- in the Comic Lab Patreon and go back to where I was talking about the sitcom approach to writing and how I use that as kind of a of a template to just do page by page what's got to happen on every page of a 22 page comic. I've been doing that for a couple of years now. It works really well for me. And what you have to realize is every time I sit down to write, I have two stories that go concurrently in any one swing. I've got an A story and a B story that go in any one like 22 page comic. And uh, all I know is where the characters start at the beginning of A and where they end up at the end of A and where they start at the beginning of B and where they end at the end of B. And it doesn't matter how that happens. I, I, I set myself up an outline that says, okay, I'm on page three. I've got to talk about story A and I've got to be at this certain point in story A. It's got to be at the midpoint of story A or page five has got to be the end of where we come to the point of no return for story A. And using that outline, I don't have to know the middle. All I got, and, and I, I, don't, I, I like right now, I don't know exactly how I'm going to come to the end of the Evil Link story that I started on, but I know that it's going to end in a certain place. And I know that my job is to find the most interesting way to get there. And also, I'll throw this in. I also know that the more in advance I work on this, the more that I can find even more kind of little points to line up so that they 
connect in certain ways later on. In other words, if I do this totally by the seat of my pants, I'm going to miss a lot of opportunities. But if I work a little bit in advance and get that writing happening further and further out, I get more and more opportunities to connect some dots that all of a sudden materialize and my writing improves exponentially. Right. But it doesn't, you don't need to know where you're going. All you need to do is know that you're going to get there in the most interesting way possible. The thing too about, um, I, I want to circle back around on this idea that um, that Brad said that you don't need, there's a hundred ways to get from Los Angeles to Denver, but as long as you're enjoying the drive, it doesn't matter which road yeah. you take. And that's the thing is that if you are enjoying writing and drawing that that road trip from LA to Denver, that will come through. So just enjoy what, if you pick a path, then enjoy that path because now you're stuck with it. You're, you're writing publicly now, so <laughs> you might as well enjoy it. But in, enjoy enjoy the corner that you have written yourself into and um, and just have fun with it. And by the time you get to Denver, then, then you tackle, like for example, uh, uh, don't worry about how you're gonna, I mean, you do worry about it, but, but don't let it uh, uh, stop your writing for cold, is when you're on the road trip from LA to, to Denver, don't worry so much about how you're going to get to Chicago that it stops you from getting to Denver, if you know what I mean. Right. Like, yes, don't let absolutely. That, don't let that freeze you up. Like, you'll figure that part out a year from now, two years from now, when you're getting from Denver to Chicago. And that is the corner that you're painting yourself into. Was there a character killed on the road trip to Denver and now you got to figure out what to do to Chicago? Yes, that's fine. Was there somebody that had a major character moment that changed their personality? That's also fine. That's a corner that you've written yourself into that you'll they'll, you'll get yourself out of. But the other thing that I want to say about writing in a public way, uh, a long form story is that it's also advantageous because there are times as an author where, <laughs> and this is just a humble moment where you're writing, hmm. you're writing along and things are going great. And some reader will comment, boy, this would be a great time for XYZ to come back in the story. And I go, you know what? It would be a great time for XYZ <laughs> it to sure come back. Would. <laughs> Guess who's coming back in next week? Yes, they are. All right. Yeah. And, and that's a prompt that you don't always take. Like there's always going to be a reader suggesting a thing, right? But, yeah. but sometimes that public prompt is like, you know what? Yes. Uh, anonymous number two, four, three, five, you were right. I am going to bring back such and such. Yeah. And, and don't be so full of yourself that you can't take that prompt, right? You, or, where you say to yourself, well, I'm not going to take that because that wasn't my idea or, you know, what does that guy know? But be aware that good ideas can come from anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And if, and if this idea resonates with you, don't feel a single qualm about taking it. And that's the thing is it's got to resonate with you. It's not like it's just taking it because 20 people on a forum said, oh, that would be a good idea. It's got to resonate with you right. as the storyteller. And so yes. part of that is going back to the ancient Greek tradition of telling stories around a fire of, of you know, long form stories where if your audience was yawning, well, then maybe it's time to get the battle back into the story. You know? And if the audience is super into it, well, then you keep that love story going because you can physically see around the fire that your audience is loving that moment. So Absolutely. when you're writing a long form story publicly, uh, check in with how the comments are going, not to ruin it for you, but to make it more fun of like, oh, they're really loving this. And you know what? I'm loving it, too. So, yes, I will take this prompt and can and and feed my own joy in this moment. Yes. But uh, but, Brad, one thing I want to circle back around on, and uh, the, I want to uh, reference Bone for those of you that have read Jeff Smith's Bone, which is excellent. And, mm -hmm. uh, and actually, I'm remembering now is one of the better versions of a publicly written installment-based long-form story in modern American storytelling, right? So Bone was written as short-form uh, comics and then collected as one now large graphic novel. But uh, one thing that I want to reference because I can see it artist to artist is the character of Rockjaw, which is the large cat 
in um yeah. in bone right and whether you love him or hate him here's the thing that character is not at all critical to that story but basically jeff smith i can tell as an artist was like you know what i want to draw this month i want to draw a large cat that lives up in the mountains that the, that the bones have to interact with and god bless yep. him he did it who cares it's his story if you were looking at it from an editorial standpoint, if it was a submitted, published uh, piece for publishing, you would say, "Ah, eh, you know what? This 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 beginning of the third act, you don't need this rock jaw character. Just get rid of that." But because it was written in installments, who cares? It's in there now. You know, like it's it's a delightful part of the story. And it, was it critical? No, but he was having fun with it. So allow yourself those little offshoot roads that would take you to the world's uh, largest ball of string, i.e., rock jaw and bone. Because it's fun to have those little moments in a story, and you don't. Not everything has to have the ultimate purpose. If it's a truly long form story, you can have you can have side fun moments uh, while you take that major road trip. Yeah, and that, that's a that's actually something that I, I like. I, do you ever have like little phrases in your head that you kind of keep reminding yourself uh, as you're writing, almost confidence boosters? When I'm writing, I always get that 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 thought in my head as I'm going. If you come to a fork in the road, take it. You know, don't close yourself off to anything. If if something comes up and you want to go down that road, take it. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? I can give you a great illustration of that, Brad, with Drive. And I, you don't even have to know the story for this. I have a, a fixed ending for Drive in my head, and it has stayed fairly solid. But the way that end is going to happen has changed because I took a fork in the road in my second act. And so yeah. a character that was not involved previously is now going to be involved in the final conclusion because I took a fork in the road and who cares? Now it's, now it's going to be part of the story. And, and so basically a version of that is to say yes to, to choices that pop up into your mind. Don't close yourself off and don't freeze with indecision. Just say yes and go with it. If, if it doesn't work for this long form story, your next one will be you'll, you'll be better able to spot and self edit for the next time you come to a fork in the road. Boy, if there's ever a theme to this podcast, that's it. Everything you do takes you to the next project that's even better. Right, exactly. So whatever follows drive, I will be better situated to start that story and to to uh, dance along that road trip as I go because I will have made mistakes and successes with this one. All right, well, let me go, let's go on to the next question here, shall we, uh, Bradley? Sure, that's fine with me. <laughs> I like the, I like the, I got a, I got a genuine fumper out of you. All right. So uh, here's the question. So I've been getting a lot of fans that private message me and only want to have idle chit chat or any kind of conversation that could easily just have taken place in a public forum. And when I ignore them, they either get upset or assume I'm angry at them. A harsher way of putting it is, how do you tell a fan you want to have a good creator slash fan relationship with them? but that they are not your friend. Ooh. And optional complication, does that answer change when the clingy fan is also a patron? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. I want to I answer the second one first. Is that all right, Brad? Uh, go, go ahead. I know what my answer so is. So I think the second answer is... Personally speaking, no, it should your whatever response we suggest in a second here, your answer should not change when they are a patron. And what I mean by that is you should not base your career, your decisions, your actions on any one reader, any one fan, any one patron. Remember that you are writing for 10,000 bosses, not one boss. And if you lose or gain one, it is not the end of your career. You want to write to the 10,000. And even more important to that, you want to write to your heart and you want to react to your heart. So don't let mm -hmm. one fan, one reader, one patron change how you would naturally act to a situation. So that's my answer to the second part. Brad, what's your answer to the second part now that we started that one? Yes 
and no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think by nature, a patron is a higher level fan. They're your, they're part of your uh, 1000 true fans. Those are the people that you really want to cultivate and handle with kid gloves. Now, does that mean that uh, they have bought your their way into your life and that you owe them a certain amount of yourself that you wouldn't normally give? No, of course not. But does it mean that you give them a little extra leeway and and you treat them a little bit differently than the person that's just reading and going home? Yeah, I think you do. I think I think you give them a little bit of leeway because they're the people that again, that you're trying to cultivate. And everyone's going to draw that line a little bit differently. But no, I think a patron, you you give them a little bit more leeway because they're the people that you want to cultivate. I, I don't know why this image popped into my head, but it made me laugh. It's like someone slaps Brad and then insults his wife and he goes, hey. And then they go, hey, I just became a patron. He goes, well... You know what? <laughs> we can, so we can find comes, our way through the situation. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's talk about clingy fans. Um. So what is a clingy fan? Let's define that first of all. I would de- define clingy. It's kind of like you know it when you see it. Like there are fans for whom you are genuinely delighted, and anytime you see them at Comic Con or they respond in a form, you're like, "You go, Susan or Greg or Bob or whatever the clingy fan is," because if they're able to spin their clinginess into wit or witticism or um, genuine delight, like like anything in life, it makes it more tenable. But I f- I define a clingy fan as someone who for whom I am just no matter what they do, I'm like I'm just uncomfortable with this situation. Like you are you are up in my grill too. Much much, my friend. You need to go away. And so how do I respond to that? Um, I'm trying to think in the past how I've responded to that. It's a version of don't give it oxygen that we respond in terms of the negative comments that we yeah. were before. If someone is tweeting you seven times a day, you can give them one tweet back uh, or one email back and then maybe give it a couple days or a week or two weeks and just just <laughs> deprive a little bit of that oxygen like I, I I got other stuff I'm doing can't talk right now you yeah. know and I think you will find like most human interactions that the social energy of not giving it a response makes uh, tamps down their enthusiasm for constantly badgering you I have the theory of the misbalanced response okay that that ties right into that and that is when this is happening and you can tell this is turning into something that's too clingy and they send you an email, for example, that's five paragraphs long. If you send back a very polite response that's two sentences, that sends a really, really clear message. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. And it, and it goes along with what you said about depriving oxygen. You can be very polite. You can be you can be super nice. And, and you should be because, again, if somebody's that wound up in what you're doing, let's face it, that's why you started doing comics in the first place. But if you want to kind of slow and pump the brakes a little bit, you mismatch your response. So if they write you a book, you write them a pamphlet, <laughs> you know, or you write them yeah. a tweet. Yeah. What I found in my own dealings is that that slowly starts to get across that, you know, they're they're not going to have a pen pal relationship with you where you're going to send them 
10 paragraphs back, you know, it, it, and, and pretty soon that becomes very obvious that this is kind of a one-sided thing and they find something else to do. Well, let me ask you this because I've only had this happen once, worst case scenario, less than a half dozen times in my career. Have you ever had a clingy fan for whom there is a point where it become it feels a little unsafe? Un- I've never, no. And, and that might be, you know, the, the privilege of being me. I've never felt unsafe in any of my dealings uh, on the web. I can't, now wait a minute, having said that, no, I can't say I've ever felt truthfully unsafe. We we had that one guy back in our webcomics.com days that we were all pretty certain was going to show up to a convention and you know go go crazy on us, but it, I never took it seriously. So no, I don't think I ever felt unsafe. Have you? Once or twice. But so I want to I also want to circle back on that person that you mentioned before because it's worth mentioning. This was a person who was genuinely mentally ill and was badgering a whole host of web cartoonists back in the day um, about perceived slights. It was a version of like the black helicopters of the UN are taking over the government. Like the, the theories that this guy had as to why web cartoonists were doing or saying or conspiring with the things they were doing was like, what all this poor man, what is happening in his life and in his brain? So that I always chalked up to mental illness, but there have been one or two fans, and I also think it's a form of, of male privilege that you and I have not felt unsafe That in a way that our female colleagues have felt unsafe by clingy fans or desperate fans or clearly yep. romanticized fans, uh, or not romanticized, but like uh, assaulting, you know, verbally assaulting kind of fans, but in, in mm-hmm. their own mind feeling romanticized. I, I think that's a form of male privilege that we enjoy that our female colleagues do not, that is... Uh, and for that, I it's it's best probably to address that when we have uh, uh, friends on who can address that how they've uh, managed it because in in the one or two times where I've felt unsafe, what's happened is the clinginess has extended into way too much knowledge about me, my family, or uh, my spouse, or my life, and mm-hmm. it becomes very uncomfortable when someone knows far too much about your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yep. there is a form of unsafeness that I felt there, and so that has actually a long time ago made me shut down on sharing certain private things because, again, you have to make it to your own comfort level. But there have been times where I was like, no, I don't want this to be known by people because the four or five people in the past who have known way too much about my life, they'll know this and I don't want them to know this. (laughs) And so a form of clinginess that gets to that level I would always advise a level of safety in what you share online. Don't tweet what your neighborhood is. Don't share the the name of the restaurant you hang out a lot is because people will tr- – the true weird crazies in the world, and there are them, will triangulate where you live and they'll triangulate what you do and who you interact with. And they can figure out basically by reverse engineering uh, your tweets and your Facebook posts and your, and your blog posts who, where you are and where you live and who you interact with and who's in your house. And uh, you just got to be safe. Uh, not for the not for the 10,000 people who love your work and enjoy your work, but for the one person who's a little bit off their rocker and has, for whatever reason, personified you of, of what's wrong or, or what's right in the world and wants to be involved in your life, you know? <laughs> and again, it's a form of uh, a lot of that is a form of extreme loneliness or extreme uh, disconnectedness. And they have found a connection with you through your work. And so uh, way too much energy goes into that rather than into the social interactions that they should have in their own life because right. they have felt connected to you via your work. And therefore, 
you and they have a friendship because they respond to your work. Um, and, and you have to tell them, no, 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 no. You like you have responded to the characters and the voice that I put out into the world through my work. You don't. It's, it's a version of you don't know me. You don't know my life. Right. No, and they don't. And frankly, they don't have a right to. That's not the exchange that's happening here. The exchange is I'm mm. giving you my ideas, my stories, my characters, my jokes. I am not giving you me uh, as we've already started talking about. But you do have to have strategies in place for when they start to claim ownership on you and your life and your friendship because they don't have the right to that. Having said that, guys, know that something Dave said earlier that we have, as a guy, you have a different internet experience than some of our friends who are women and create comics. If you're in a situation where uh, one of your female colleagues comes up to you and says that she feels unsafe about something that's happening, like at a comic convention, don't assume that your experience on the web is the same as her experience on the web. And be prepared to be an ally, to be a friend, uh, because her experience on the web, guaranteed, has been very different than your experience. And be prepared to listen to them when they say, if, if, if something happens and she comes up and says, geez, I feel unsafe. Take that seriously because you have a different internet than right. she does. Because it's everything that, that we were just talking about in terms of a fan saying, I know you from your work, therefore we're friends. The version that a lot of our female friends and colleagues have gotten is, I know you from their, from your work, therefore we're romantically involved. And you're like, oh God, oh God, <laughs> get, get the hell away from me. And so it is an unfortunate part of fandom and of readership that there is a tiny, and it should be emphasized that it's a tiny per, per, uh, percentage, but yes. that it's the same kind of thing as like the difference engine and the, and the threat uh, matrix of, of, a, of, a, of a negative comment online. Those five, per, five people out of 50,000 will feel like they are 50,000 people when you have them in your life because if there's if there's one thing your brain responds to is danger and a form of clinginess can even trigger that same danger response. But as far as strategies, did we answer that? Did we did we did we get that a successful answer as to how we deal with clingy fans? I think we deprive it of oxygen. We do a, we do an yep. unbalanced response matrix, which I think is a good way to do it, Brad. So two sentences to their mm-hmm. 40 paragraphs. And then I think also it's like slowly tightening a valve to help make clear what the relationship is. So let's say I send Brad 10 paragraphs. He sends me back two sentences, right? I send Brad another 10 paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Maybe he responds. Maybe he doesn't. If he does respond, maybe it's just one sentence now. I send Brad, Brad back 10 paragraphs. Yeah. Now I definitely don't respond. Right. I send another 10 paragraphs. I still don't respond. And maybe I don't respond for like five or six emails or, or tweets or texts. And then the next one is one word. Ha ha, love it. Or, you know, like, and and actually uh, having said ha ha, love it, maybe the response is not an encouragement or an affirmation, but it's a word that that gives no more fuel to the fire. Oh, there's. And there's lots of words like that. Like, like I, I, every now and again, I'll just use indeed. Indeed is yes. neither positive nor negative. That's <laughs> a great, that's a great word something. choice. Yes, Brad. Brad nailed it right there. Indeed is perfect. And the idea there being that you're slowly throttling down the gas supplying that fire. And so mm-hmm. if nothing else, you're establishing what relationship you should have, which is I am creating a work, you are reading work. Occasionally we will interact and that is that. And if they are starting to imagine you and they going on a trip to Disneyland, then, then uh, you're throttling that back <laughs> with uh, slowly decreasing amounts of oxygen. I will say one more thing is that, uh, and this might surprise mm-hmm. people out there, is that there there have been times 
I probably only does it a dozen times, so not as much as other people, but there are times where I've ended up blocking people and very rarely for being in clinginess because usually that's a misdirected form of love or admiration. Mm -hmm. uh, but with negative comments, and just to put a capstone on that earlier discussion, there have probably been a dozen times in my career where I said, you know what? Nope, I don't need this. I don't need any form of this. You're blocked from my forums <laughs> and I'll block you from my emails too because now you can you can rail like an old man shaking his fist at a cloud I uh, because I won't hear it anymore. And it's been worth it because there are, uh, as Brad said, there are some people that just like to go through life angry. And so I have just chosen to say my forum is a form of my living room. I don't need to invite you into my house to have you yell at me. So um, I'm going to block you. And, and that's that. Oh, that's such a great point. Well, yeah, I've, I've only had to block like a handful of people over the course of my career, almost always when I was attacked, like just outright attacked. <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh, you know what? I, I don't need that voice anywhere near my consciousness. But up until this point, we've been talking about private correspondence and you just brought up message boards and forums and, and uh, I, we can also throw social media in there. And don't make the mistake of, as you're administering your website, don't make the mistake that what's happening on your site is free speech. It's not. You have absolutely, you, you can absolutely maintain your dedication to free speech and block somebody from posting on your message board or in a blog uh, comment or something like that uh, because you are not stopping that person from their free speech. You're administering what's happening on your website, which is very important. They can still make all the speech they want. They've got lots of places to make speech. They don't need to use your forum to do it. And that is not censorship. That is just maintaining a proper household, as it were, and, and not giving this person a spotlight that they can put negative stuff out. You do not have any obligation to hosting negative comments. In fact, uh, this is a complete tangent, but I became the happiest I have ever been several years ago when I turned off all comments on Evil Inc., I, I was hosting a zero reader huh. comments uh, because it, it, and it made me the happiest I've ever been because it, 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 what always happens is the best comedian in the world, a, a Chris Rock, a George Carlin, every joke they've ever told, if they had a, an audience of 10,000 people, a certain percentage of those persons didn't get the joke. That's just, that's the way humor works. Humor's not 100%. Then some people, be, depending on what they're bringing to that interaction, that joke, that piece of humor missed with them. But here's the deal. If you're hosting comments on your website, there's always somebody posting, I don't get it. Right. And if you go through and you read comments under comic A, you get an, I don't get it from some guy in Georgia. And then comic B, there's an, I don't get it from some guy in Tennessee. It's always a guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm using the unisex guy. And, and no, comic Brad, C, I just somebody... Brad, I just want to correct you. It's always a guy. <laughs> it's always a guy. It's always a dude that has a feeling that he, the world deserves his opinion. But yes, yes. And then comic three, it's it's somebody from Portland, right? And what happens is two things are happening. Number one, you're reading all of these and you're getting, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. And what happens is you start writing safer and safer humor, the kind of humor that it's not funny, but everybody can get it. 
right? Right. <laughs> you know, we've all read strips like that. It's not funny, but I get it, right? <laughs> you start writing safer and safer humor. Your writing takes a nosedive because you're trying to eliminate the I don't get it. That's not good. Plus, anybody else that's reading this and they see all these I don't get it's, that shows a certain light on you because, they, they, again, they're not taking the time to think, oh, these are three different standalone situations. No, it's like, oh my God, everything this guy writes, he's got people telling me he doesn't get it. He must not be very good. Uh, you don't need any of that. And the very few, uh, the, the, the conversations that happen can be directed to social media where they can do you some good. Right. That's where the conversations, you can, you can get a little something out of them because you can, that person now becomes a follower on social media and they're going to hear when you announce your next Kickstarter or they're going to get an update on the Patreon and so forth. So I direct all of my conversation to social media where I can get something from it, take it off of my site where it's in many cases more detrimental than good. And as a result, I think I've become a better writer because I don't have that, oh my God, are they going to give me an I don't get it on this one? No, I'm just focused on making the best humor I can, making the best story I can, and the rest of it, <laughs> listen, if somebody doesn't get it, they don't get it. Right. That's the nature of humor. But I don't need to have that staring me in my face at, on my site every day. Well, I'm going to give everybody option B on this because I, li- I like and appreciate and admire your stance that you got rid of comments. Uh, and I think that's a valid, a totally valid path. But the, mm-hmm. the way I have approached it is in addition to blocking people that were, were genuine jerks. And I want to circle back around on that in a second. I've also just taken it upon myself. I'm just going to delete negativity. That's what I do now. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and when someone says, Hey, you deleted my comment. And I go, I email back and I go, Oh yeah, yeah. That's cause you were being a dick. So I, uh, I just deleted that. <laughs> um, and, and what's funny is most people go, Oh yeah, you're right. I guess you're right. I was being a dick. So, yeah. And what my attitude on that is that basically if I'm going to invite people into my house, I'm going to be like a nun with a ruler. You're going to, you're going to behave yourself on my forums. Like right, you're going to be nice, right. you know? And so I've actively tried to encourage kindness and politeness and at least respect. Like you can criticize my writing or criticize the joke or criticize it, but there's nice ways to do it. Just don't be a jerk about it, you know? Right. And so slowly but surely, it's kind of steered the conversation towards kindness. There's still a new person or, or a dude, and it's always a dude that comes in and like, meh, 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 meh. <laughs> but you just delete that. And most often, if you delete it, no one makes a comment because frankly, they didn't even check back. They just wanted to have their opinion on the internet and then they put it out there and right, they never right, looked right. back. But I'm not going to have that sitting on my website forever. So I just delete it. And is it right or is it wrong? I don't care. It's just my, it's my site. You're going to be nice. You're going to be polite on my site. And that's that. And then the other thing I want to say about people that I've blocked. So remember how I said I've, I've maybe blocked a dozen people on my site over time. This is mm-hmm. the most fascinating thing and absolutely goes back to our, our discussion about these are just people that just want a response is I will block people. And it takes a lot for me to block you. You have to really actively be a jerk or like nine comments in a row were dickish, right? Mm. Uh, but like actively dickish, not like accidentally dickish. And I know the difference. You have to actively choose to be a jerk and then I block you, right? And then I'll get emails being like, hey, I was... I was blocked from the drive server f- forum, and could I be could I be reinstated? I promise. No, um, I was blocked. I was blocked from the drive forum, and, and uh, that's all. They just wanted their little tiny soapbox to stand up and be a jerk on. It's like, no, I, you're an adult, and if you're not an adult, then this is a good learning experience for you as a 13 year old yes, to be a polite person. Yes. But if you're an adult, then no, goddamn it, you're not going to learn how to be an adult on my forum. You're going to go do that somewhere else. 
else because uh, we can all be pleasant to each other online. And so it's only happened a dozen times, but there's been three or four people that after they block them, they're like, hey, um, hey, Dave, um, can I can I be allowed uh, back on the drive forums? Um, and you're like, no, no, I gave you plenty of opportunities. Anyway, so that's that's my take on people being negative on forums. Oh, my gosh, that's great. Hey, oh, do you hear that? I do hear that. Well, that music means you've been listening to Comic Lab, the show about making comics and making a living from comics. Your hosts have been the always polite, always kind, always delicious in any conversation. Delicious? Wow. That took a turn, didn't it? <laughs> anyway, the, <laughs> the ever-friendly Brad Geiger, the editor of webcomics.com and the cartoonist of Evil Inc. at evil-comic.com. And the sparkling, effervescent Dave Kellett, none with a ruler and co-director of Stripped and cartoonist of Sheldon at sheldoncomics.com and Drive at drivecomic.com. And that delightful theme song music that you hear in the background is used with permission from Andy Creighton at theworldrecord.net. And you know what I love most of all? It's that Comic Lab is made possible by your support. You, the person listening right now. Your support at patreon.com slash comic lab. So we'll go ahead and we'll say it twice. Patreon.com slash comic lab. Yeah, I hate to see them work so hard. Yeah, me too. And let's go around back. Well, we can't see them. Gee, we ought to do something, Fred. Okay. How's about taking that? I, I got a better idea. Let's take a Winston break. That's it. Winston is the one filter cigarette that delivers flavor 20 times a pack. Winston's got that filter blend. Yeah, Fred. Filter blend makes the big taste difference, and only Winston has it up front where it counts. Here, ahead of the pure white filter, Winston packs rich tobacco, specially selected and specially processed for good flavor in filter smoking. Yeah, Bonnie, Winston tastes good like a cigarette chug. The Flintstones have been brought to you by Winston. America's best-selling, best-tasting filter six. It tastes good like a cigarette 